Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach. Joining me is my semi-usual co-host, retired Navy Captain Bill Bray, who is the Deputy Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine. Hello, Bill. Hello. How are you? I'm wonderful. That's great to hear. And also, we have a special uh, co-host who is another member of the Proceedings staff, Editor Brian O'Rourke. Hello, Brian. Hello, Ward. Hello, Afshin. We don't, don't talk to our guest yet. You've just pierced the fourth dimension. I, I broke the fourth wall. You did the I'm fourth sorry. wall. Yeah. Okay. So we'll, we'll roll so that make back. Sure I never we can get clean that up. Back. We'll clean that up in post production. Um, so a couple exciting things going on. First, let's announce our uh, personnel addition uh, here at the Naval Institute. In fact, this guy has been a guest on the Proceedings Podcast. We're speaking, of course, of former Fleet Master Chief Paul Kingsbury who is one of the authors of the new Chief's Guide that the Naval Institute Press just published. But we are super happy to have this franchise player on the team with us here um, at, uh, at uh, the Naval Institute. So we'll get Paul into the mix here with, uh, with helping to co-host the podcast. And uh, Fleet Units, you'll be seeing him out and about uh, in a, with great frequency. So just wanted the podcast audience to know that... Uh, Paul Kingsbury, Master Chief One Each, is with us at long last, and uh, we're super excited to have him on board the team. It's going to be a, a, a great addition for our staff here. The other news tidbit before we get to our guest is as we sit here and we look out uh, the window of Beach Hall, we can see one of the newest Navy ships, uh, a, a literal combat ship. The uh, the USS Sioux City is sitting pierside, seawall side at uh, at the, here at the Naval Academy, and it's going to get commissioned on Saturday. So it's very exciting. I think that's the first commissioning of a ship ever at the Naval Academy. Is this true? I'm not sure. I think I did read that, but I don't want to go out on a limb and say ever. Ever is always a word you want to be cautious about. Yeah, <laughs> the Naval Academy's okay. been here a long time. Yes, it has been here a long time. But I, I think, since you're the intel officer and you care about fact more than I do as the aviator, um, I'm going to say it's the first commissioning in the yard. Um, so, it, you know, LCS, we've dealt with LCS here on the podcast. Um, we'll, we'll keep the, the politics out of it and just celebrate uh, the fact that uh, we're having a commissioning of a, a new Navy ship towards our 355 ship, ship Navy. Um, so that's happening Saturday, which is also the last home game here, uh, Navy versus Tulsa. And the uh, season isn't going so great, um, but uh, hopefully we can uh, pull one out. And then obviously the game that matters uh, is the one on December 8th, which is the Army-Navy game. And we'll talk that uh, more detail as we get closer to December 8th. So, um, Billy B., why don't you just go ahead and introduce our guest? Sure, thank you, Ward. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, it is my pleasure to introduce uh, Mr. Afshin Malabi. Um, Afshin is a senior fellow of the Foreign Policy Institute of the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies in Washington, D.C. He, uh, in pr a previous uh, uh, work, he was a, a reporter for the Washington Post and worked at Oxford Analytica. He uh, published a piece with us on in Proceedings Today back in October uh, titled The New Silk Road Runs Through the UAE. Um, among his many areas of expertise is the uh, ongoing uh, effort by China uh, through their Belt and Road Initiative to, um, uh, to spread that out through the Middle East in, in particular. 
So uh, with that, I will um, ask you, uh, uh, Ashvin, um, can you just talk a little bit about that subject, uh, and particularly for uh, the U.S. Navy, the naval implications of having uh, Chinese state-owned em- enterprises running uh, major uh, Middle East ports, such as um, uh, the recent um, uh, business deal deal with the Emiratis and the UAE. Sure, Brian, uh, and thank you. It's great to be on with you. Uh, um, you know, when you think about uh, the Belt and Road Initiative, I mean, you, you really have to realize that this is probably one of the most uh, ambitious uh, foreign policy initiatives out there in the world today. And I, I think it's not, uh, um, you know, it, that's not an exaggeration. Um, uh, you know, you're, we're, think, we're looking at the potential for anywhere from, you know, $100 billion to $1 trillion of investment in places that actually need the investment in infrastructure. Um, but as you noted, a lot of the investment is coming from state-owned enterprises. Um, a lot of the investment is not always uh, commercially viable, uh, either for the state-owned enterprise or for the country receiving the investment. Uh, and so there's been a lot of talk about debt traps, right? Uh, there's people who are talking about, is China laying a debt trap on countries in which they are investing a great deal in infrastructure? And the classic example is Sri Lanka, where uh, China invested quite significantly in a port called the Hambantota port. Uh, and uh, ultimately, Sri Lanka was unable to uh, finance the, the loan. Um, oh, there was a great deal of corruption in the original loan as well. Uh, and finally, Sri Lanka simply gave the entire port over to a Chinese company. And so that's always used as exhibit A in the examples of China's quote-unquote debt trap diplomacy. Uh, Pakistan is also facing uh, quite a significant amount of debt from uh, what's called the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, CPEC. Uh, and, and the new uh, prime minister in Pakistan has been asking, you know, many of the right questions about that debt. And, and you know, were some of these projects projects to nowhere? Um, Malaysia is asking questions about China's uh, infrastructure investments. On the other hand, um, there, if you are a developing country, if you are an emerging market, and, and you want to survive in the cutthroat world of globalization we're living in today. You need ports, you need roads, you need infrastructure. And you need particularly the infrastructure of connectivity. And when Western Europe is in no uh, position to be investing in your infrastructure, when U.S., uh, the United States, is not shown an inclination to invest in infrastructure uh, outside of the United States in any significant measure, when the World Bank can only put together Uh, a certain amount of money. And by the way, when the World Bank does put the money into the infrastructure investments, they ask a lot of questions about the environment and and transparency and those sort of things. So the the best game in town for many folks is China. And let me just just, just add here that I was just in uh, Athens, Greece, um, and I visited the port of Piraeus uh, in Greece, which is another uh, major Chinese investment in, uh, in, in port infrastructure. Uh, that particular investment seems to be going very well. Uh, the, the Chinese company that invested in the port of Piraeus uh, has turned around the port. Uh, the port was floundering 
Um, it's now uh, attracting a great deal of traffic. China is the world's largest trading nation. Anytime you have a Chinese state-owned enterprise uh, investing in your ports infrastructure, chances are you're going to have companies like Costco, China Ocean Shipping Company, and others sending a lot of traffic your way. So in my view, it's not a clear-cut uh, case of, of, of you know China engaging in rapacious activity to put countries in debt. A lot of the countries need this infrastructure. They need the infrastructure of connectivity. Now, the, the one example that I used in the uh, proceedings article, which was a pleasure to be published by you guys, thank you, was the, was the one that uh, um, the You're Chinese welcome. investments, uh, thank you, Chinese investments in the UAE, um, and particularly in a new port in Abu Dhabi, Khalifa port. It seems to me when you have a situation like where you have a country like the United Arab Emirates that is not about to get into a debt trap, um, uh, because they, they have significant cash reserves in their own uh, sovereign wealth fund. Um, they have a relatively small population a, a, and significant oil exports. Um, those are the kind of things where you could see win-win situations, um, where you do see uh, China Ocean Shipping Company, again, investing uh, in uh, a port in Abu Dhabi. Uh, and it seems like a, a commercial venture that can serve both sides very well. Ironically, it, within the United Arab Emirates, the, 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 the entity that might be uh, most miffed by the Chinese investment in the Abu Dhabi port is Dubai Ports World, uh, which uh, is going to lose some of the traffic that they already have in the Jebel Ali container terminal port. So, so this is a long way of saying that, I, that I'm, I'm still exploring the Belt and Road Initiative and its impact in the Middle East and North Africa region. And there have been cases where there's been debt trap diplomacy and there's cases where you can see a win-win uh, for both sides. And I, I uh, read recently the C4ADS report about China's port uh, investments overseas, and that particular, for the uh, listeners that aren't familiar, the, the long and short of that was that uh, after a long, uh, extensive study of Chinese literature, in um, Chinese language literature, uh, the uh, think tank came to the conclusion that m much of these port development projects that China is undertaking <clears throat> have first and foremost a strategic objective, not a commercial uh, commercial objective. Not all of them, but many of them, and uh, that was backed up through the language. So, Afshin, in the Middle East, is that do you see that as being the case? Um, you mentioned at the outset that some of the some of the investments aren't commercially viable, but um, in the Middle East, uh, maybe Djibouti or or elsewhere, um, is that is that the case? In other words, is China undertaking this to get a position in these ports that could serve them in a geopolitical, perhaps even a military way someday, if possible, or at least deny it to uh, to an adversary? <coughs> and um, and what, what do you think about that? Sure, I, I think that. You'd have to look at each individual case. Djibouti does seem like a good case to be made for a strategic investment. Um, you know, it gives you uh, nice access, you know, on on the Red Sea. Uh, you know, China has long been concerned with piracy, uh, particularly in the Bab al-Mandeb, uh, um, Somali piracy and elsewhere. So it, it and it, you know, that they actually did build, you know, a military base, their first overseas, you know, military base. So there's a strategic implication there. When you look at, for example, what they're doing in Egypt, uh, where uh, Chinese construction companies are, um, you know, building 
some of the the new Egyptian capital. Uh, that Cairo has become so congested and so polluted uh, that authorities have decided that they ought to start thinking about building a new capital. Uh, and uh, Chinese construction companies are going in there uh, and winning most of the contracts, and and they're going to be building that new capital. But the Chinese have also been investing in uh, Suez, um, uh, and so we're we're seeing uh, you know. Um, uh, they're the biggest investors in the Suez Canal economic zone. The other one that's interesting to look at is um, they are investing um, significantly in Oman, um, you know, which which gives them, uh, you know, in, in, there's a new development in Oman called Dukum. You know, say that three times fast. It's D-U-Q-M, Dukum. Um, and, and they're developing a, uh, a free trade zone. Uh, they, they're trying to attract investment uh, from India, uh, China, Saudi Arabia, and all across uh, the world. And, and, you know, in many ways, Oman is very well positioned uh, because, you know, th- this particular port in Dukum is right on the Arabian Sea. Uh, you don't have to go into the Persian Gulf. Uh, you don't have to deal with the Strait of Hormuz. Uh, and if, so if, they're, if the Chinese are able to, you know, help Dukum get off the ground, I mean, that could be an example uh, of, a, of a win-win uh, for Oman. I mean, you know, the, the problem with these deals is they're so opaque and we don't know, you know, what what the terms are of these deals. Uh, and we don't know how onerous the debt is on these deals. But one thing we can say is when it comes to the South China Sea, that's where China really views it as its own backyard. Um, uh, the further away you get from the South China Sea, uh, we see less Chinese adventurism. Um, and particularly when it comes to uh, the Gulf region, um, you know, there has been a lot of talk about, uh, you know, when is China going to play a security role in the Gulf region? After all, three out of four barrels that exit the Strait of Hormuz head for Asia uh, and they don't head for the United States. You know, we as you, every, all of your listeners know, we in the United States are providing a security umbrella uh, for Asian growth in a sense. Uh, given the, the amount of oil that heads to Asia. Um, so, so thus far, we haven't seen uh, China uh, be, be try to leverage its investments in the Middle East for greater strategic uh, gain. But, you know, th- th- I, th- that is certainly on their agenda. Um, and, and then the question becomes, uh, the question has always been, in my mind, uh, the, the, when people ask the question, when is China going to play a greater role in Gulf security? And my answer to that is when the Gulf states want them to. Uh, and, and at this stage, they don't want them to. Um, they're, they're quite happy with the American security umbrella. They're quite happy with the relationships they have with the U.S. Navy and the U.S. Air Force and the U.S. military. And they're not, they don't necessarily want China involved in policing the sea lanes of the Persian Gulf and the Arabian Sea. Afshin, when we first started talking about your proceedings article a few months ago, you had just come back from uh, Norfolk, where you had been talking to the, to the Navy. Uh, what are you telling them about the Belt and Road Initiative that our our listeners might want to hear about? Sure, I you know I, I think what I'm telling them is is uh, when President Xi Jinping announced the Belt and Road Initiative in 2013 in a series of two speeches, uh, one in Kazakhstan and one in Indonesia. Uh, it was a concept, right? Um, and, and what has happened since then over the past 
few years as that concept has been colored in, has been refined. Uh, and, and now, you know, the, the Chinese leadership led by President Xi Jinping has actually added Belt and Road to the constitution uh, of, of the Chinese state. Uh, so this is going to be with us for a while, particularly since President Xi Jinping uh, has also managed to position himself as president for life. Uh, so this is going to be with us for a while, so we better get used to it. And now, once, once, but I think it's still important to go back to that original idea that this was a concept. So it's a concept that's still being colored in, uh, and it's a concept that many Chinese companies don't entirely, entirely understand, including the state-owned enterprises. But one thing they do know, one thing they do know is if they go uh, um, and in you know any developing country X, emerging market Y, and they declare a particular project a Belt and Road project, uh, what's what's Chinese for kosher? Because that that's what it's going to be. It's going to be allowed. It's going to be uh, um, a project that that the authorities are not going to look askance at. Particularly at a time when President Xi is cracking down on corruption. At a time when President uh, Xi is is also. Uh, um, trying to rein in some of the state-owned enterprises with some of the uh, lavish spending on hotels in New York and and soccer teams in Europe. Um, now, if they're going to spend outside of China, um, you know they they better do it on an infrastructure project in Kenya, uh, or on a uh, or on a road in Montenegro. Um, and so so it, it's going to be with us for the next you know five or ten years. Now, what does it mean? For folks uh, in the U.S. Navy, well, what it means is that there's going to be a lot more ports that are uh, that are going to be either dependent on Chinese financing uh, or actually run by Chinese ports companies. Um, and and you know the the implications for that uh, are are significant. Uh, you know we when when it comes to um, you know the, the Hambantota in Sri Lanka. Uh, you know, we actually have a wholly owned, you know, Chinese port right on the uh, in the Indian Ocean. Um, and so so the, the implications are significant. So you're not you have to watch this space closely. But it's also not as organized and as mass as much masterminded as we think it is. As I said, there's a lot of companies chasing projects uh, because they need to chase those projects. They have a lot of excess capacity in steel, cement. Uh, and others, and, and they have to use that excess capacity. They have to meet their targets of spending and investment. They have to, you know, show growth. And 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 you know, you can show growth by doing an overpriced uh, uh, train in Kenya that that co- that goes way over budget. But it, at least you're showing growth, you know, uh, on on the bottom line. So so we're going to see a lot more of that sort of thing. And then the other thing we're going to see is more reactions across the developing world. To, to these uh, investments, like we're seeing in Pakistan and Malaysia and Sri Lanka uh, and, and increasingly in Kenya. Uh, just so you know, Option, if you look in the Facebook comments on the Facebook live feed here, one of our commenters provided uh, Chinese for kosher in the comment. Uh, Christopher Nelson <laughs> okay, gave, gave that. So, so uh, thanks, Christopher. We're going to hope that you were uh, playing fair with us with what you actually typed. <laughs> Uh, That's great. Uh, is there a is there a U.S. response that we need to be thinking about? I mean, is it time for another Marshall Plan? 
I saw in the Wall Street Journal today that the administration has budgeted $60 billion odd uh, because they're seeing that some of the Belt and Road projects are going badly and that there's some hesitation mm-hmm. and some uncertainty in China. And so maybe the opportunity has come for the U.S. to step up its own funding. Is that is it time for a response or is it uh, still time to wait and watch and see? You know, it's a good question, Brian. I, 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 uh, I think one of the um, uh, one of the no-brainers that that I think we we overthought and 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 chose uh, not to uh, do was to participate in the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank. Um, during the Obama administration, uh, China uh, came forward with this idea of an Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, uh, and you know, everyone, you know. All, many of our allies, just about all of our allies, signed up to become, you know, members of this Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, but we chose not to become members of that. And the reason I, I think that was a no-brainer is because, uh, you know, the infrastructure needs uh, all across the the world, uh, but particularly in Africa, are so immense, um, and 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 any effort uh, that we we can get involved in that supports infrastructure uh, investment. In which we don't have to be putting in, you know, all of our own resources ourselves. I think should be welcomed. Um, and any effort in which we're involved in, of course, is going to have higher standards. Uh, you know, of course, they're, they're, the deals are not going to be as opaque as the deals that the China Export Import Bank does, for example. So I think that was a missed opportunity. Uh, look, uh, you know, when you look at the world, I think it's worth just for a moment taking a kind of a, a macro horizon look. Uh, we're living in a world where 85% of the world lives outside of Northern America and Europe. 85% of the world. That's not a forecast going out to the year 2030 or 2040. That's today. right? And, and we're living in a world where there's 129 million children born every year. And where are they being born? They're being born predominantly in Asia and Africa, where currently three out of four people in the world live. You know, we're living in a world of rapid urbanization. Uh, if you look at the at the latest numbers, we're about a 1.5 million new urban dwellers every week. If you count uh, both uh, births and rural to urban migration, um, and we're living in a world of growing middle classes, right? So, so a lot of this portends a great deal of promise, right? Because if you're if you're a global multinational consumer company, you're chasing that global middle class that is rapidly urbanized and wired and connected in ways unimaginable uh, from, you know, many years ago. But if you are a government, if you're the government of Kenya, if you're the government of Brazil, if you're sitting in the National Security Council, um, you look at, you know, that kind of growth, you look at rising middle classes with rising expectations that are rapidly urbanized and connected and wired, and you say, "Uh uh-oh, you know, that was exactly what happened in Tunisia, where you had rising middle classes, rising expectations, uh, a young man um, who uh, uh, was faced with a, a moment where his license was taken away from him, lit himself on fire. Uh, and, and, and that was the inciting incident that led to the uprisings in all across the Arab world. So when you when you think about uh, that, that world we're living in, it's it's both it's it's both holds enormous promise and also enormous peril, and in order to meet the demands and the needs of that growing growing middle classes with rising expectations or the or the or the the poor, uh, you're going to need to build more infrastructure. You're also going to need more to build more infrastructure to slow the Africa migration uh, to Europe. 
the, the median age in sub-Saharan Africa is 19. The median age in Europe is, is 41, right? You know, have you heard this term, wow. guys? Um, we, we, all, we all talk about black swans, but have you heard this term, uh, gray rhino? Um, it was uh, uh, Michelle Wooker who wrote this great book called The Gray Rhino. And she says there are, you know, while we're, while we're looking for black swans, there are these gray rhinos that are facing us, right? Um, and and, and, and we, don't, we don't look at them, but they're facing us, and we should be looking at them. And one of the biggest gray rhinos is Africa's population, which is going to go from 1.2 billion to 2.4 billion by the year 2050. Now, no matter where you stand on the Africa's rising narrative, with a median age of 19, that kind of population growth, they're simply not going to be able to create enough jobs, and particularly in the age of automation. Uh, uh, so, so we're going to continue to see migration uh, to, to Europe. So uh, unless some countries in the region are, are able to benefit from the infrastructure of connectivity. So as you can tell, I'm a big believer in infrastructure, um, and I would like uh, uh, us in the United States, but, but to engage broadly around the world at the G20 level, on, on, on how we can support infrastructure development everywhere in the world. Uh, excellent. Um, that's just uh, fantastic insight and uh, with a lot of good uh, data. Hey, we have a question, uh, or I, I guess a, a request or a question from one of our uh, current listeners about any book, good book recommendations on the uh, Chinese economic and military trends, maybe one or two. Sure. Uh, uh, yeah, no, I, I, I certainly, I certainly can. So Chinese economic and military trends. All right. Well, first, let me give you a book on, 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 on China itself, and then I'll go to the, the economic trends and military trends. Uh, uh, so the, one of my favorite books um, that is published recently on China was by uh, Evan Osnos. Um, it's called the uh, um, the age. Uh, it, it's called the Age of Ambition, Chasing Fortune, Truth, and Faith in the New China uh, by Evan Osnos. Uh, um, and and it's, a, it's a wonderful book. He's, he was, he, he was um, uh, the, the, uh, the reporter for the New Yorker magazine in Beijing. He speaks fluent uh, Mandarin, uh, and it was, a, it was an excellent book. And, but what, I think what was most striking about that book is he, he pointed out something that I think that, that, that is, I'm noticing around the world. Um, uh, and and it's, uh, there is a new sense of aspiration in China, right? Um, and, and, and by that, you know, what, what he means by that is that if you were uh, a Chinese living in China 30 years ago, 30 or 40 years ago, you didn't really have any meaningful aspirations, right? What you had were, you know, um, you know, un- unrealistic hopes, maybe, um, you know, for where you can, how you can improve your life, or you lived a life of drab misery. You know, uh, I mean, let's not forget the the Cultural Revolution was, you know, not that long ago in China uh, when when they were sending people off into work camps and labor camps. But today in China, the young a young Chinese has this sense of aspiration and ambition. That that you know uh, would would simply be unthinkable for their parents' generation, and absolutely unthinkable for their grandparents' generation. So so the age of ambition, chasing fortune, truth, and faith in the new China by Evan Osnos. When it comes to the the New Silk Road uh, and and the Belt and Road, I like Tom Miller's book. Um, it's called China's Asian Dream: Empire Building 
along the new Silk Road. Uh, I think it, it, you know, it, was, it came out in 2017, so it certainly needs to be updated. Um, but but it, it was it's a really good, it goes deep into several uh, projects and it goes deep into the thinking behind the Chinese leadership uh, on the Belt and Road and, and, and what they're thinking. And I think when he wrote it, we were still calling it One Belt, One Road. Uh, but now, the, the, if, if your listeners want to be sure that they're, you know, uh, au courant with the acronyms, it's the BRI, Belt and Road Initiative. Um, uh, and, and when it comes to, you know, China uh, naval um, and China, um, you know, military, a book I read a while ago uh, was Red Star Over the Pacific. Uh, and, and I mean, that's, that's a, you know, uh, uh, a very good book. It's, it's basically a, um, uh, China's rise and its challenge to U.S. maritime strategy. Um, I think it came out in 2013 or so. There, there may be a, a, an updated edition, but, but Red Star over the Pacific, uh, helped me, uh, understand China's, you know, maritime strategy and really kind of helped me understand uh, and 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 it, by the way, when it first came out in 2013, I mean that was you know er, you know the you know early days in China's more aggressive actions in the South China Sea. Uh, so you know you update it five years from now, uh, and 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 we really see that 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 is uh, Xi Jinping's in his view his backyard, and and I don't think he's going to be backing down from a fight in the South China Sea. Well, for one thing, they've built about 800 new ships since that book was published. So that's right. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. And and uh, and and I just I'm, while I'm on, I, I just looked up on my computer, and it does see it does seem that there is actually a revised edition coming out uh, in December of 2018. So so Red Star over the Pacific uh, is uh, is the one I'd recommend with the revised edition, which will co- be coming out in about a few weeks. Uh, so those are the ones that, that I'd recommend. I also would also add that for a kind of a historical uh, look at the Silk Road, um, you know, the magisterial historical work uh, on the Silk Road is called uh, the Silk Roads, uh, and it's by um, Peter Frankopan, um, and and just a, just a beautiful book. Uh, uh, called the Silk Roads: A New History of the World, and that was published in 2017. Ashan, one of the things you talked about as you were talking about the Osnos book is this mm-hmm. uh, age of expectation that younger mm-hmm. Chinese citizens have. Uh, last month, we had our new China Challenge conference here at the Naval Academy. Uh, former Australian Prime Minister Kevin Rudd spoke, and he talked. Uh, You'll be able to read his remarks in the November proceeding and the December proceedings. We're working on it now mm-hmm. uh, for publication. But one of the things he talked about is a real cha- potential internal challenge to the party is that idea that, um, for one thing, younger citizens expect the party to do something about the environment. They're not satisfied mm-hmm. with the lax environmental regulation that had been the rule in China for years, uh, and that ambition towards a better life uh, for everybody is something that poses a threat to the, a potential threat to the party. He didn't see it as of a huge concern at this point, but he certainly saw it as something that was on their radar. Do you agree with that? Do you think that this ambition really does pose an internal threat that we should be keeping an eye on? Yeah, I, I, no, no doubt we should be keeping an eye on it. But, you know, what's interesting to me, Brian, and is that it just seems like the, you know, the, the old political science axiom, you know, is that when you 
Um, when you're, a country reaches a certain level of GDP per capita and you develop middle classes, uh, you know, that's when those middle classes begin agitating for greater freedoms, greater accountability from their government, and, and frankly, democracy, right? Um, China is challenging that axiom because they, they, they've certainly been rising in the GDP per capita uh, uh, rankings. Um, they certainly, I mean, they've lifted uh, anywhere from 600 to 700 million uh, people uh, from poverty over the past uh, three decades. Uh, you know, you're, you're, you're at GDP per capita levels uh, that, that would lead one to believe in, you know, if you believe in the kind of the political science idea that, that, that you reach a certain level, then you begin agitating for democracy. China is already at those levels. So, so China poses a very interesting, you know, a political science challenge in that respect. The other thing to note is that there already are protests every day in China, uh, but they, they tend to be teachers' protests or, or you know, villagers who are upset with a particular, um, you know, corrupt official. Uh, and and you know, there's there's kind of flash protests taking a place all the time. Um, the Communist Party seems to be very good. Uh, at, at localizing these protests and making sure they don't go national in any way or in a significant way. And, and it does seem that the Chinese middle class has for now traded in consumerism uh, in favor of pluralism. You know, I mean, you know, consumerism is the ism that dominates in China right now. Uh, so, you know, the company Alibaba, right? You've heard of this company, which is the sure. e-commerce uh, giant in China, right? So, so Alibaba uh, uh, does something called uh, uh, Singles Day, um, where it just it just took place a few days ago, and it's an annual tradition where they uh, they put everything on sale. It's kind of like our version of Amazon Prime Day, right? Um, uh, and this past just a few days ago on China, Alibaba Singles Day, they did thirty billion dollars in sales. $30 billion in a single day. Um, now, by contrast, in Amazon's Prime Day, they do about $2 billion, right? So China is also leaps and bounds ahead of us in the United States when it comes to payments on mobile systems. I mean, you know, when I go to, you know, uh, uh, China and I try to pay for things, even in second-tier cities with cash, they look at me like I'm from outer space, right? They all want you to swipe your phone. They all want you to use the the, either the Alibaba Paytm system or, you know, one of the systems on, on uh, WeChat, um, which is the, the big social messaging service uh, run by Tencent, this massive conglomerate, which has been feeding the video games that are polluting the minds of our young people in the United States <laughs> for the past, uh, you know, few years. But anyway, the point I'm trying to make is that, is that consumerism is alive and well in China. And, 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 and what worries me about the current uh, trade uh, disputes between the United States and, and China is the, the, the Trump administration seems to be wanting to take China down a notch or two. Uh, and, and, and look, no doubt that the, the, some of these state-owned enterprises are stealing intellectual property. No doubt that they're, they, they haven't opened their markets in the way they should. All of those things are true. Uh, but we also have to be careful what we wish for. Because the great China demand engine is vital to the global economy, right? Uh, uh, Chinese aggregate consumption, you know, by the year 2040 and beyond, 
is on par to reach U.S. aggregate consumption. And for so many years, the, you know, the U.S. consumer uh, was carrying the weight of the global economy on our shoulders. We were carrying it. But now the Chinese consumer is contributing and carrying a lot of the weight of the global economy on their soldiers. They're the world's largest consumer of you name the commodity, right? They're the world's largest consumer of it. World's largest consumer of movies, of beer, of pork, of eggs, you know, and on and on and on. Um, and, and so the great Chinese demand engine uh, has become vital to a global economy addicted to growth. So what you're uh, so saying I, is if, yes, the U, if the United States outspent the Soviet Union to win the Cold War, the Chinese could right. possibly outswipe the United States. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good way to put it. They certainly are outswiping us in that space already. Uh, um, you know, but, but, you know, the the important thing to remember, of course, is is uh, is when I talk about the rise of the, the quote unquote rise of the rest and and the rise of China is that, you know, in my view, the United States is still the most dynamic and innovative economy in the world because of the U.S. private sector. For all of our dysfunction in our politics, um, you know, uh, the temper of our commercial life is still vital uh, and it's still uh, innovative and it's still vigorous uh, and and, and, and as long as that remains the case, uh, I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'd still bet on the U.S. horse over the China horse in the long run. And it's also worth noting, Brian, that China is aging, right? The median age in China is 35 right, right now. It's not one of the young countries around the world. And China is going to get old before it gets rich. Hmm. Um, and so they're going to have a lot of folks, uh, you know, over the age of, of uh, you know, 60 um, that, that, are, that are not going to be this young, dynamic, vibrant, you know, country that it has been over the past, you know, 15 years that has led to its growth spurt. Uh, the article is a proceedings today item, which shows uh, the, the our digital uh, properties have as much impact, and we're very uh, happy to show the agility with that. Uh, it's called The New Silk Road Runs Through the UAE. It was uh, uh, posted last month, or I'm sorry, in October, which I guess is last month, yeah. The author is Afshin Malavi, who's been talking to us uh, in this show. Afshin, thank you for the insights. Uh, very, very cool stuff, and thanks for spending some time with us. Thank you. It's been it's been a great pleasure, and uh, and and go Navy. I, I I took my son to the Navy Lehigh game uh, a few weeks ago, and so that was a great win for Navy. But we Navy hasn't been doing as well since since uh, since that game. So no, maybe that was our last I need to take my win. son to the next game. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So the, there's a game Saturday, right, against Tulsa. We actually have a, have a chance in that one. So that may be yeah. the last chance this year if you want to uh, potentially see him win. Um, but right. if you come over here, let us know, and uh, we'd love to have you come by Beach Hall and uh, and Studio C here, the famous Studio C, not to be confused with Studio A down the hall. Uh, but again, thanks for the time, Afshin. Uh, so that does it. That does it for this edition of the Proceedings Podcast. Uh, we'll see you guys next week, and remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. See you next time.